Welcome to the second episode in our series on Waiting with Wisdom. In today's conversation, Trinity Forum President Cherie Harder speaks with musician and author Andrew Peterson about the importance of location and living responsibly and attentively in whatever specific place you inhabit. This podcast is an edited version of our online conversation from December 10th of 2021. You can listen to the full conversation with transcript on our website. Here's Cherie Harder. We're so excited to welcome our guest today, joining us in the midst of his concert tour. I think he's joining us somewhere in Nebraska for a conversation that I expect will be both wide ranging and perhaps unusually framed by trees. Now, what do I mean by that? His latest work, The God of the Garden, explicitly aims at not only evoking the wonder and pleasure of truly beholding the beauty around us, but also argues that the way we see and tend to the place in which we are planted is closely connected to our own interior landscape and a vital part of what it means to, in his words, live in hope, dig deep, branch out, and bear fruit. It's an enticing invitation as well as a provocative challenge. And it's hard to imagine a writer and artist who could make it with more insight, wisdom, or artistry than our guest today, Andrew Peterson. Andrew is a recording artist, songwriter, producer, and award-winning author, as well as a gardener and a beekeeper. He's released more than 10 records over the past 20 years, received three Dove Award nominations and multiple Best Album of the Year nods, and is actually in the midst of his annual Christmas tour, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year with an all-new recording of his best-selling album, Behold the Lamb of God. Andrew is also the founder and the president of The Rabbit Room, our co-host today, an arts community which fosters spiritual formation through music, story, and art, and which has led to the launch of a film and TV production company in press, which to date has published more than 30 works. As an author, Andrew's books include the four volumes of the award-winning Wingfeather Saga, his creative memoir, Adorning the Dark, released in 2019, and his new release, the God of the Garden, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Andrew, welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to see you. It's great to have you here. So in many ways, the God of the Garden is sort of hard to categorize. It has elements of a memoir. It's a reflection on the goodness and beauty of the natural world, a lamentation of our recklessness towards it, you know, and even an analysis of the power of place where trees function as the structural framework of it. So I'm curious what led you to write this work uh, and how did trees in particular come to play such a generative part of your own imagination? That's a great question. I, uh, the book was born because I was stuck at home during 2020. I was on tour over in the UK uh, in March of 2020 when I got word from my manager that if we didn't get home, like in the next 48 hours, I might be stuck there indefinitely, which was tempting. I, I called my wife. I was like, hey, I might just stick around. Uh, kidding. But we, I found myself at home with this long runway of no shows, and I've toured pretty heavily for 25 years or so. So it was the very first time in my life that I've, I've gotten to experience all the seasons from my own place. And around that time, my editor at B&H, who published Adorning the Dark, they reached out and they said, hey, do you think you'd be interested in writing a book, another nonfiction book? And I said yes, but I didn't know what I wanted to write about because I, 
I'd rather just kind of like work on the book on my own and then come to you. And, and when I realized that COVID wasn't going away, I suddenly was like, I guess I better write a book. And so thanks to a, a writing group that we would, we would get together during 2020 every, every so often and just mainly hang out, but kind of kick around what we were working on. And I kept coming back to this idea of, of trees that, and I'd been reading a lot of books about trees and fascinated by place. And I just saw them as kind of representing in some ways, the journey that, that I had, God had kind of led me to up to this point, because they represent rootedness and this idea of place. And they also, it turns out, represent it, became keepers of memories, you know, for me, that the more I thought about them, the more I began to remember about my own life. And I think the thing that really unlocked the book to me, which is ironic because the book ended up not being about this, but I was listening to the Bible Project podcast, and they have a series on trees in the Bible. And I was just so uh, fascinated by the fact that trees play this really strong role in the whole narrative of Scripture. And Tim Mackey at one point actually said something like, there's no better candidate for a biblical theme than trees in the Bible. And I was so interested in that, that you can trace what God is doing through trees and the way they show up in Scripture. And so this book is kind of like not that. It's more like me tracing what God is doing in my own life through trees. Does that make sense? So I took the same theme and applied it to my own story. And the book is about what I discovered. That's fascinating. And I want to come back to your point about memory in just a second. But you know, in some ways, this is sort of your second memoir. And the first one kind of focused more on community and that, you know, and the role the community has played in your own life. This focuses more on place. And historically, at least, community, place, and memory have been, in many ways, part of the, the foundation of identity. But we are increasingly at a time when our, our relationships are, are thinner. We're less likely to be enmeshed in community. We're less likely to be rooted in a place. And we're increasingly distracted into amnesia. It's hard to remember kind of what's going on. And having essentially written two memoirs of your own life about kind of what hit your own sense of identity through place and community, I'm curious about what you think is happening to our sense of identity writ large as our communities fray, we're increasingly uprooted and we're increasingly distracted. Oh man. Uh, well, I, I've been thinking a lot about it. It's, it's tricky because I, okay, let me go back. I got to go to visit Wendell Berry one time at his place in Kentucky. They were all jealous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was with a few friends of mine who were older than and wiser than me. So I just decided to just sit in the back and listen. And and at one point during the conversation, Wendell looked at me and said, well, Andrew, you know, tell us about you yourself. What are you doing here? Whatever. And, and I just, it was my chance to thank him for writing his books, Jaber Crow in particular. And I said something like, I was like, you know, I just wanted you to know, like my whole life is different because of your books. I, it woke in me this longing for place. And so my wife and I sold our little subdivision house. We moved into the country and and started, you know, I started beekeeping and doing this thing. And, and about that time, Tanya, his wife rolls her eyes and she goes, you're not one of those, are you? And I was like, wait, what do you mean one of those? And, and she was like, we get these letters from people that say that like, we sold everything and we started a farm. And Wendell goes, that's not what I mean. He was like, everybody's not supposed to, he was like the, what I mean is to stay put, right? Like, don't, don't, like the answer, it's just another version of the thing that he's always talking about, which is this cultural lie that the only way to be happy is to be somewhere else. 
And so, so I kind of told him, I was like, well, we only moved like four miles. It wasn't like we, we abandoned our community, but, but we, we did realize that we needed to be in a place where we could envision ourselves living until we died. Whether or not that's what happens, we wanted to give ourselves a chance, a fighting chance to live that kind of life and, and begin the process of really sinking into place and, and seeing what happens if we, you know, dedicate some portion of our lives to, to the real stewardship of the land. And so, uh, you know, the irony is I grew up in Illinois and Florida and, you know, but Nashville has been, I've lived there longer than anywhere else. So you've got to kind of start somewhere. And I think that ultimately, I think what Wendell Berry is getting at and what I hope to, to hint at in this book is that it's, even if it's just a little change in thinking, like you don't have to uproot everything and learn how to milk a cow, you know, I think, but I think if we just learn to pay attention, learn, like cultivate a, a life where you really fight to see where you are and remember where you are, it changes things. I was just thinking about this, that my, we have some friends who used to live in England and are back in the States now. And they said that they were trying to hold on to this idea of community, even though they lived in a city. And the, the idea that they came up with, and I, with varied success, was what if we, th them, they and their group of friends committed to always going to the same coffee house and always going to the same grocery store and, and put patterns in their lives that gave them a chance to bump into each other from time to time so that they could actually feel like they lived in a community instead of this disconnected thing. So I think little things like that are like a great way to just push back at this this the frantic culture that keeps disembodying us. Yeah. You mentioned trees as a memory device a little bit earlier, and you wrote some fascinating things along that regard. And I, I want to read one of them and then ask you to comment about it a little bit. You said this, trees bear witness. Most of our memories up and vanish, and the timeline of what we do remember is sure to get discombobulated as we age. But trees give us a place to hang our hats. Think hard about the trees you remember, and if you're anything like me, they'll turn out to be sage and gentle keepers of our days, unlocking memories long since forgotten. So I'm curious, like how trees have kept memories for you? And when you say think hard about the trees you remember, how, how do you think about trees? Yeah, the, well, it was fun when I was working on this book, I started asking people, and I'm tempted to ask you this. Can I can I ask you this question? Like, are there any trees you remember from when, when you were young? Yes, there are. Any specific trees? Can you give us one? Yes. You know, when, growing up in Illinois, uh, there were two trees close to each other, big trees in our backyard, and I had a tree house. Oh, nice. Where? Uh, so I also grew up in Illinois, and I remember two maple trees. I wrote about that in the book. And the more I thought about the trees of my childhood, the more I could picture where I was and when, you know what I mean? Like it just ended up, and, and so it wasn't, it went from there to, okay, what happens if I write chapter one about the trees in Monticello, Illinois, where I grew up? And then by the time I finished that chapter, I remembered other trees and, and I started thinking about trees in Florida. One thing led to another and there was this, it turned out that there were, there were these little, you know, treasures hidden in a field, you know, <laughs> I, I, things that I, I'm certain I wouldn't have remembered otherwise. And so, you know, if you, like I said earlier, if you, if you couple that with this idea that, that in scripture, tr the trees end up being places where people meet God. And it turns out that that was true for me. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. You mentioned a little bit earlier seeing, and of course, how we see is a big question. And one of the things I thought was interesting is you linked in your book seeing well with poetry, which is actually, of course, something that we we hear, you know, or or read. And you wrote about walking through the English countryside with a guide who quoted, I think was Wordsworth, you know, as you walked. And you talked about how the combination of poetry and in front of uh, all that was in front of you helped you better see the realities of things. And I'd love to hear from you kind of what you saw more clearly and how poetry and art helps us better see reality. One of the things that I keep thinking about that, that writing this book taught me is to have a better relationship to time. One of the th- wonderful things that happened when I was in the, and we were up in the Lake District, which is where Wordsworth lived a lot of his life. And this tour guide would stop in a certain place where Wordsworth in his poem said, this is where I'm standing when I'm writing this poem, you know? And we can also stand there and we can see the same pond and the same island in the middle of the pond. And and there's something that time compresses in that moment. And you feel you feel less alone because, you know, there's this guy that lived you know, a few hundred years ago that suddenly is, you feel intimately connected to. Mm-hmm. And it changed the way that I saw the trees all around me in my place. And so then it also changed the way that I saw the work that I'm doing, because suddenly I see that sometimes the work that we do outlasts us for generations, you know, in, in a really quiet, beautiful way. So that's, that's one part of it is that poetry and can, can compress time, can help us to see kind of from a bird's eye view, our own story in relation to someone else's story, but also, you know, I feel, I, I said frantic earlier, I feel like a lot of us in the West, at least, are living these fairly frantic lives. And I, I was talking to my my counselor the other day about how um, um, 2021 feels like it's making up for lost time. You know, we all had this weird kind of peaceful, you know, sad, and there was a lot of suffering that happened. I don't want to discount that. But for many of us, there was something really healthy about being still for so much of 2020. And, and I, I want to hold on to that. But I was thinking about how I usually think of time in terms of opposition. You know, I think of time as this this thing that is always running out and it and I'm and I, you know, my life is ordered by it and pushed around by time. But 2020 gave me a chance to see time as a friend and not an enemy. And because suddenly I was able to work the land at a proper pace and think about putting things in the ground and knowing that it would be months, if not years before they became what I intended them to become changed the way that I thought about my songwriting or the books that I was writing. I was like, all of a sudden, when there was time to really stop and see and pay attention, I got a little glimpse of the new creation. When, you know, we'll have these bodies that won't be running against the clock, bodies that will be flourishing for millions of years. And, and, and I want to do work that looks like that, you know, I want to, I want to think of my time here as something that is tied to that eternity and not something that I'm just trying to, you know, I'm, I'm don't want to live like I'm a hamster on a wheel. So, so I think poetry and learning to see are ways of pushing back against that franticness. So, you know, throughout your work, there's, there's intimations of the way that our tending to the physical world has implications for our own interior landscape and relatedly that a failure to connect with or care for the place that we find ourselves often has something to do with our failure to care for and connect with each other. 
And I'm curious as to what you see as the link between care for creation and care for community or our fellow creatures. Yeah. Well, the one of the things that I talk about quite a bit in the book is not just care for creation as in ecology, but the way we build communities, spaces that we inhabit, and that the way we build says something about what we believe theologically, about what the earth is for, about what life is for, in, in the Wendell Berry sense, what people are for. <laughs> and so there is a... Um, I li we live in this corner of Davidson County, which is where Nashville is. It's one of the last corners of town where you can still see cows. And, uh, and it's part of why we moved there was because there were cows. But now on the, on the Cane Ridge Community Board, there's just all of this. Everybody's in a kerfuffle about the fact that developers are just every square foot of this place is just getting bought up. And, uh, and I'm, you know, there's a part of me that's like, at, I love the city. I think a city can be a really good and beautiful thing. And the country can be a good and beautiful thing too. And I don't think you have to have one or the other, that there can be an overlap of the two in a really healthy, beautiful way. And so, and, and I, I kind of hold up in probably in a fantasized sense, the way that they do it in England, you know, where there are footpaths and, and there are villages that seem like they're, they're, they don't live in opposition to the countryside around them. There seems to be a, a, they're better at integration over there in some ways. And so, whereas in the States, because of zoning and subdivisions and the fact that many of the subdivisions that get built are built by people who have never set foot on the land there, you know, they are their owned. you know, the, the guys that buy the property, they see it on a map and they snap it up, snatch it up. And, and so don't, they don't have any real care for the community that's there, right? They don't really care about the people and people need homes. I totally get it. But with a few tweaks, we could change the way that we live our lives and make them less and less dependent on automobiles. We could, if I could, I would add a cafe and a bookstore to every, every subdivision in America. <laughs> and the thing is, it's possible. Like you actually could just dedicate the houses at the front of every subdivision to having a little general store and a farmer's market and a coffee house. And I guarantee you that it would create ways for humans to live together the way that they were meant to. So yeah. I, I guess that's what I'm getting at is that the way we build things has a ripple effect that changes the way we experience other people. So there's a, a great book. Last thing I'll say, there's a great book by Jane Jacobs called The Life and Death of Great American Cities. And man, she really digs into this stuff in there. But one of the things she points out is this idea that in a city, strangers are expected. And so you get used to living around people who look different than you and think different from you. And you go to the same you know, grocery store and you shop at the same place and they're not cause for fear. But in a subdivision, they usually have no trespassing signs in the front. And if some anybody that looks different than the people who live there are, you know, the next door app just lights up, you know, saw saw a suspicious person, what person walking through the neighborhood. And I just think that it, it ends up downstream creating fear and suspicion in us for people who don't aren't in our socioeconomic, you know, window and, or they look different from us, whatever it may be. And so that's just an example of the way that we take care of the place, the literal place that we live changes the way we see each other, you know, and obscures the image of God. Well, of course, I have to ask you about more of those tweaks and I'm curious about what you think, you know, the current design of our subdivision says about what we see as what we believe to be true about human flourishing. And what some of those tweaks would be that you would suggest? Well, I mean, for starters, we could start growing things in our lawns. <laughs> I, I think that uh, 
it wouldn't be a bad idea if, if everybody learned how to take care of something. Most of us, in, at least in our subdivision, there are people who, have, you know, they have really pretty entrances, but, you know, there's this little postage stamp of green grass in the front lawn. Everybody's like trying to make it greener than their neighbors, but nobody ever really uses it for anything, you know? You could actually grow things there. Howard Kunstler talks a lot about this in the geography of nowhere, this idea that, that the streets are so wide and the lawns are so big that you don't have any sense of place. I was just in a, in a town a couple days ago. Where was I? We're on tour, so we're bouncing from city to city. And there are like some old parts of town where, you know, big lanes of traffic weren't the idea. It was like there's a sense of closeness. And all of a sudden you feel like you're in a place with a capital P because you can see the store windows and the apartments above it and the park and, you know, line of sight stuff. This idea that, that the land is meant ought to be a civic good and not just private property. I think that if we added footpaths and ways to get walk from place to place would, would change things in a huge way. Those are just a few ideas that I have. I just know that like this idea of the American dream that everybody has their, their house and their yard and their bonus room, those aren't bad things. You know, those are the, like, I want people to like have these, I have those things, you know, I'm really thankful for them, but there's some kind of change in mindset that needs to, there needs to be a way for us to naturally get to know each other. You know, one of the things about subdivisions that James Jacobs points out is this myth of togetherness, this pressure that we feel that like we're, we're meant to be best friends with our neighbors. And so what happens is we end up feeling kind of awkward around each other. And so then we never hang out because it's like, well, I'm so, I feel guilty because we were supposed to be, be like in each other's lives, but we weren't. And now I'm just going to stay in and watch Netflix. But if there was like a, a cafe in town where you naturally bumped into them, you wouldn't feel that same pressure. It's like we all have this like a little bit of buffer and privacy and and it makes it's like we were meant to engage that way so anyway the the reason i'm kind of stumbling over my words is because the more i read about this stuff when i was working on my book the more i realized how deep you can go and how i'm just skimming the surface of of the thinking about this stuff i would commend to you eric jacobson's book uh, sidewalks in the kingdom he got his phd in theology and space and and or a place or something like that and uh, and i think that it there's a lot of people who've done a lot of great thinking about this that i kind of i'm hoping to like send people to those folks in this book just to kind of peek that this idea that there is a way to to live differently than than we have been doing it in america i want to ask you a little bit about grief place and healing in that you know in this work you are you're quite forthright about your own struggles with what you've called melancholia in the past. And you also talk about the healing you found, not just, you know, with in relationship, but also even in gardening. I think you even use the term that God turned your grief into a garden. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about how connection to a place that not just roots us and grows us, but heals us in a sense. So I was in, I think I have seasonal affective disorder. <laughs> they call it sad. I don't know for sure it's not been diagnosed, but I just, I just know that I, by the end of winter in Nashville, I feel like if I don't see the color green, I'm just going to keel over. You know, I, I feel like this, my whole body is yearning for spring and, and that comes, brings with it, you know, some depression and, and I actually went through a long season of depression around the time I turned 40 and it happened to coincide with with this garden plan that a friend of ours gave us, Julie Whitmer. And I, I realized that there was something that I needed to embody what I believed to be true. 
Like it's one of the one of the reasons that we ended up in a liturgical church is because I felt like I was I was in a place where there was a ton of theology and a ton of singing, but we didn't receive communion but once a month, you know. And if I was gone on the road a lot of Sundays, then I ended up not receiving communion for months on end. And so, you know, communion, the Eucharist is this this tangible experience that reminds us of the love of Jesus and the presence of Christ, you know? And so I, it is a lot more things too, arguably, but, but I was like, I found my body was actually craving some connection with what I believe to be true here and here, you know? And so I could talk to myself, like when I was working on a book or writing songs, I could talk about the hope of the gospel and I could talk about the resurrection and I could talk about God's abiding presence but I didn't really feel it very much, you know. I, I could assent to these things and say, yes, I know these things to be true. But something else entirely happened when I went out into the garden and started pulling weeds out of the ground. And, and you know, the one cool thing about it is a lot of times when you're gardening, you're literally in a kneeling posture. You're you're in a, a position that that of worship. And so I found myself kneeling, um, working the ground. It's pretty solitary a lot of the time, so you end up talking. I end up praying a lot and talking to God a lot while I'm doing it. And there was something about the embodiment of this this practice of putting something dead looking in the ground and then expecting by the great mystery of creation that God, we plant the seed and God makes it grow, that I'm going to come out one day and I'm going to see that new life has come from this dead looking thing. And so it taught me something in a way that I was able to experience in my body that I could not have learned any other way. Does that make sense? So so the the practice of gardening, it kind of like, it's a more holistic way of living out what we believe, I think. And it doesn't have to be gardening. You know, I don't think everybody has to go out, like I said, and learn how to milk a cow or, or plant a big flower bed. But I really do firmly believe that, that anyone that is engaged in any kind of cerebral work, like staring at a screen for hours on end, working on a poem or an essay, or an article or a book or whatever it may be, or any kind of computer work, you have to balance that out with some engagement with creation, with the given world, right? Or we're cutting ourselves off from one of the clearest voices of God in our lives. That makes all kinds of sense. You know, I, I may be wrong about this. I'll be interested in your thought, but I, when reading your book, I sort of sensed a, a tinge of wistfulness, maybe even a little bit of melancholia in some of the chapters in the stories of, you know, ancient majestic trees casually destroyed by a reckless meth user, or the the pansies planted in memory of a, a daughter who died too soon, you know, later pulled out by, you know, a, a new owner, you know, who who bought the house, or, you know, even your own apprehensions about developers' designs on your own neighborhood, Cane Ridge. And, you know, in, in many ways, of course, this is metaphorical, not just, you know, agricultural, but um, why, what is, what do you see as the enduring worth of toiling and tending to something so fragile and fleeting as a garden? Hmm. Well, I actually believe that in some mysterious way, the good and the beautiful things that we give ourselves to here carry over into the new creation. And I don't know exactly how that works, but but in the same sense that Jesus's resurrected body, were still were he still bore the scars, like he didn't resurrect in this 
it was a glorified body, but that glorified body also included marks of the story that he had lived before, right? And, and in some sense, I think that that's what we're headed for, that I don't know if there will be a new Nashville. I hope there will be, like there is a new Jerusalem. But, but I do think that like, there's a part of me that wonders sometimes if this whole thing is, when we finally see, when the lights are turned on and we see the new creation, we're going to see that there was a lot more, we're going to recognize a lot more than we think sometimes, you know? And so I, I have to believe that like in the chapter I wrote about my mom and dad working working their little piece of property in Florida, knowing that none of us kids are in a position to take over that property. Uh, none of us grew up there, but and, and it's not in a place where we can take care of it. It grieves me to think that my mom is doing all this incredible work, you know, and my dad too, like planting these beautiful gardens that are probably going to, but there's no way anybody's going to love them as much as my parents did. But I do believe that in some mysterious way, because my mom will be resurrected and her story will be resurrected, her memory of this garden will also be re- resurrected, I think. And, uh, and that the new creation will bear some kind of scars of what it is that we've, what we've done here. And so, yeah, I, it gives an eternal picture to what it is that we're doing. In, in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, she talks about how in the new creation, we're going to tell the epic, kind of like Homer, the epic of the old creation about how God redeemed it and how he moved among us and, and conquered death and did all this and that there is going to be this epic they're going to, we're going to tell and retell in the new creation. And so I think that like, if, if it's true what C.S. Lewis suggests that part of the, 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 the joy later is the, the sorrow now is part of the joy later, that everything that we do, the shaping of our properties, the way that we love each other, the way that we die to ourselves carries over in some beautiful, mysterious way. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 because w- when you're gardening, it's not just the garden that's flourishing, it's you that's flourishing too, you know? It's like you are, you are a byproduct of the work that you were, you were pouring into. Mm-hmm. And you touched on this briefly, but I'd love to kind of, kind of dig more deeply into it. Many of us watching, we live in high rises in urban centers. Our others are just so busy tending to children, aging parents, a demanding job that caring for anything other than a cactus sounds really exhausting. And would just be interested in your thoughts on those who are watching who are really enticed by what you're you're talking about. How can they better see clearly and care for the place in which they find themselves planted? Yeah. Well, getting to know your neighbors is a great way to do it. Rich Mullins one time said, you ought to learn the names of all the trees on on your street. I think that's a great way to do it. Buy it, get it. There are apps that do it for you. You know, you point the app at the tree and it tells you what kind it is. And I, even if you live in a high rise, there are going to be trees around. You're going to, there's a park somewhere nearby and, uh, and learning the names of the trees, but I wouldn't stop there. Learn the names of the birds and of, of your neighbors too, you know? There's, it changes the way that you see. I love that during the beginning of lockdown last year, one of the top Google searches is, was why are the birds so loud? <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that, but it was, it was so funny to me that people genuinely thought the birds had for some reason gotten louder. And it was like, no, there just wasn't as much noise. And we were able to hear this really beautiful thing that was always there. And I think that's, that's what I'm getting at is like, there is a, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so he is speaking to us through his creation. And I think there's a whole lot of noise we got to like fight through to see it. So yeah, grow a tomato plant, man. It's so easy. You can go to Home Depot and buy a little pot and learn how to grow something. I think that, I think it's easier than you may think. Great. 
And finally, as we close out our time together, I'd like to give Andrew the last word. Thank you, Sheree, so much. It's been so good to talk to you. We love what you guys are doing here and I'm very, very thankful to be a part of this. I, I hope I've made sense in light of the fact that I'm, I'm tour bedraggled. If there was one thing that I would say in closing, you know, it's hard to talk about some of this stuff, which is why you end up having to write a whole book about it, is to get to the bottom of it, because there's a lot of talk about grief and theology and a lot of opinions that I've had that I'm trying to understand why I have them and all this kind of stuff. What it really comes down to, like you've said, is learning to pay attention. Keep, remind yourself of the abiding presence of God. It's not that that God is more present when you're standing in a forest than, than when you're in your house or you're in an office cubicle. But for me, at least, standing in a forest reminds me that he's present everywhere. You know, like going out to places where it's a little easier to hear the birds. Are the birds louder? Nope, the birds aren't louder. They're, they're just, it's easier to hear them because there's other things have gone quiet. So in closing, somebody shared this quote with me from Clyde Kilby, who is one of, he's a C.S. Lewis scholar. And I love this. It was in his 10 resolutions for mental health. He said, one of his 10 resolutions was this, I shall open my eyes and ears. Once every day, I shall simply stare at a tree, a flower, a cloud, or a person. I shall not then be concerned at all to ask what they are, but simply be glad that they are. I shall joyfully allow them the mystery of what Lewis calls their divine, magical, terrifying and ecstatic existence. Andrew, thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining us. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening in on today's podcast on beauty and wonder with Andrew Peterson. This was our second episode in our series on waiting with wisdom. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review.